celebrating 10 years of podcasting and online ministry, you are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, where we take Christian truth into the arena of ideas. Now join your hosts, Dr. Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo. Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of classic apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. Uh, This is the Bellator Christie podcast celebrating 10 years. Uh, As we mentioned, uh, starting last month, we're on our 10th year now, and we're so thankful uh, to the Lord for allowing us the opportunity uh, to be with you uh, these 10 years and looking forward to 10 more. Uh, Curtis couldn't be with us uh, tonight uh, due to some family responsibilities. Uh, we do want to be much in prayer for uh, his family. Uh, his family was involved in uh, a car accident this week. Thankfully, no one was seriously hurt, uh, but we do want to remember uh, Curtis's family uh, as they've had a really, really rough go of it this week. And so next week, stay tuned to uh, our social media accounts because we may have to reschedule next week's podcast uh, with Christmas looming around the corner. I have a few uh, responsibilities, including a few speaking engagements uh, coming up next week. So uh, we may have to reschedule next Thursday's podcast to Friday. Uh, So stay tuned uh, on our social media network, and we'll let you know as soon as we find out for sure. We do want to remind everyone that our Soteriology series will begin with our next podcast, and we're looking forward to this one. We have some guests coming on with us. Um, just a whole slate of, of episodes on this theology series. So this is one that you don't want to miss. But tonight, uh, we are deeply honored to have Dr. Mark Phillips with us on the Bellator Christie podcast. Dr. Phillips is the vice president of academics at Tri-State Bible College. And he's no stranger to the apologetics world as he regularly engages apologetic issues on social media and various venues. Uh, he received his Doctor of Ministry in Apologetics from Southern Evangelical Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina, and he resides in Proctorville, Ohio with his family. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome Dr. Phillips to the show with us tonight. Thank you for being with us tonight. Well, thank you, Dr. Chilton, I presume. Congratulations yeah. <laughs> on your your co- successful completion and defense of your dissertation there. That's wonderful news. So appreciate you having me this evening. And thank you, sir. I, I appreciate that. But I, I tell you, it was a uh, as you know, it's it's definitely a marathon, not a sprint. And I'm just grateful to the Lord to to be able to have that completed. <laughs> yes, I can and, understand that completely. So. so Dr. Phillips, you have observed particular trends in the apologetic community over these past few years, and I've really followed closely the comments that you've had, particularly on a an issue that you see taking place. And quite frankly, I, I, I see it too, uh, but you were the first to mention it. And ever since you mentioned this, I, I've really kept my eye uh, to, to the events taking place. And it's an issue you call tribalism. So first of all, what what do you mean by tribalism? All right. Well, I think it was about four years ago. It's, it's been at least four years ago. I, I I had made a comment in one of the forums that you and I both uh, camp out in sometimes. Just about, and I floated the word tribalism. I want to make uh, 
let the viewers know that I'm not married to that word. It just seemed an appropriate word at the time. So I would welcome any comments or suggestions, uh, some respectful dialogue. If someone thinks a word might be better for what we're describing, I, I think a simple definition would be a strong feeling of identity within one's group. Now, uh, you and I are in a tribe of Packers fans. Um, so see my cheese head up there. Is it? There you go. That's right. <laughs> so, so that is one group you and I are in. We're also in the apologetics community as a whole. The apologetics community has different, uh, members with different styles, different backgrounds, def- different educational levels. And it's not a big community. You know, it's, it's a mm-hmm. smaller community of many different individuals from many different denominations, many strains of Christianity, different philosophical backgrounds, uh, different understandings of, uh, perhaps secondary doctrines, maybe not the essentials that Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture, was buried and rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. You know, we're, we're pretty good as a community on essentials. It, it's in these secondary and tertiary issues uh, where people begin taking, it seems, sides uh, somewhat defensively at times. Now, I floated that that word tribalism about four years ago in one of the forums that you and I, like I said, kind of camp out and observe and engage with. I wasn't doing it to be pernicious. I just wanted to gauge some reactions. And I found it fascinating that maybe 70% of those commenting had experienced something to that effect that fit the, fit the definition of tribalism. And then maybe 30% didn't seem to either recognize what we were talking about or know it or hadn't encountered it. And and that was a legitimate response as well. Um, I try to stay fairly balanced in these discussions. But lately, uh, I think, I think what has happened. Okay. Um, as, as this, as we see this unfold about nine years ago, uh, I had a doctoral class. It was our ethics class. And for whatever strange reason, I chose the subject of uh, social media and contentious imagery. Mm. Why, why, why particularly Christians like non-Christians and others will share uh, memes and, and different uh, illustrations or photos, whatever they share on social media. Uh, I like the funny ones personally. <laughs> Same uh, sometimes, here. <laughs> sometimes my level of humor is a little sophomoric, but I come by that <laughs> honest. It was my dad who turned me on to the Three Stooges way back when. Right but, there with you. <laughs> there you go. But but then what I had done, and I'm leading up to the definition here. When I was a boy, uh, I can remember I would look over the local newspaper at breakfast. We got the morning paper. Uh, and, a, and an evening paper. And in the morning t- paper, it was a, towards the later stages of the Vietnam War. And I saw the picture of the children running down the highway after their village had been napalmed and their, their clothes were burnt off and they were, they were in agony. 
And this photo actually won a Pulitzer Prize for photojournalism. And here I was probably eight, nine years old, eating my Captain Crunch at the table. You know, my parents didn't shield me from things. And it just struck me that these kids who weren't much younger than me were suffering in such a way. You know, there's the problem of suffering. But what I found out nine years ago is that the young woman who is in the picture is actually in Canada now. Her name is Kim Fook, and she is a Christian who runs an international ministry to minister to children who suffer in war. So she has taken her physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual pain and put it to good use helping others. Now, I shared that photograph, and I got called out on it in a Christian forum because they felt I was posting pictures that people shouldn't see. Okay? And and I understand that. I realize the world has changed. That picture uh, would probably be either masked today or it would be taken down or removed, I imagine. And here's a Pulitzer Prize-winning photo that most likely can't be shown on social media today. And and so that that struck me as interesting. What is it that compels people to be contentious on social media, either whether it's um, by what they share with photographs or what they write themselves or their response to others uh, online? Um you know, I think some people are just predisposed to that sort of thing. But it started popping up in the apologetics community in particular. I think everyone got along fairly well uh, up to about 2015 and 2016. And, and, and this is not academically researched on my part. This is just anecdotal. But the tone of social media, because I've been watching it for a long time, has changed substantially. And in the sense that I first noticed it at Marshall University when I was assistant chapter director of Ratio Christi at the Marshall University chapter. And up until that time, uh, what we could expect from the students coming in was fairly, uh, there was nothing unexpected. But we crossed a threshold around 2015, 2016, when we had a grad student come in, a new student to our club, and start using terms found in critical theory. And it was at that time the complexion of the club changed. And and there were some palpable differences in the attitudes of the students. And and I'm not being critical, I'm just this is just observation. There were there were some palpable differences in the way they expressed themselves and in the ways they disagreed about things. And now I think that has bled over into ordinary discourse on social media. Uh, when I did my research project nine years ago, that was before the term virtue signaling had even been coined. And I look back on that, you know, there's that's a project I wish I could probably get back and redo some. I mean, mm-hmm. it turned out well, but now I see where even in that time span, things have changed. So part of the issue is, you you know, we we are in the world, but not of the world as Christians, yet the world influences us 
more than uh, we realize. You know, the older I get and the more hairs that wind up in the shower drain in the morning, uh, the more the, these things become obvious. And I'm not calling anyone out. And this is not a, a podcast to criticize on any particular group. Okay. These are just general observations. Well, uh, let me just interject one thing here. Sure. I, I, f- I found it very interesting that you mentioned around that time frame that you started observing changes because I heard from another group in, um, healthcare agency, not, not associated with, with the one I'm with, um, who observed the same type of things happening even in a hospital, uh, in, a, in, a, in, in a hospital around about that same time that it was not only on the academic sphere, but it's even with other things taking place, um, and other agencies, and, and again, I want to clarify that this isn't, you know, talking, I'm not talking about the agency I'm currently with, mm-hmm. uh, that this was actually a hospital somewhere else. But it is interesting that around the same sphere of time that you say 2015 or so is about the same time they, they began to observe the same type of phenomenon taking place in, in, in a whole other field. Right. Right. And, and I think that's the extent to which. And I, this is not meant to be a criticism of critical theory. Um, that's another show at another time. If someone chooses to criticize that line of thinking, the issue is the degree to which it's impacted society mm. in normal conversations. Um, people have become progressively ruder. But, oh, yeah. Um, they've become progressively short tempered and with the politicization. Politicis, yeah, the politicizing of society. I'll spit it out here in a minute. Um, <laughs> what you said? <laughs> polarizing, yeah, yeah, we're yeah. we're polarized, and it's come into the apologetics community, and it it comes down lines that, and here's why I say it's inevitable. We'll go ahead and say that up front. Now, I know I know what you have studied because I remember because I I my first master's is at Liberty. So mm-hmm. I have some of the same professors and I remember some of the things Dr. Purser brought in. So, um, I remember, I believe it was he introduced a book called, uh, uh, Jewish backgrounds of the New Testament, uh, mm-hmm. J. Darius Scott. In that book, it lists, I believe, eight major divisions of Judaism at the time of Christ. Mm-hmm. That Judaism had fractured into these different groups based on orthopraxy, the things they did, and orthodoxy, how they interpreted the Old Testament scriptures. So it came down to interpretation and doing what they thought was right. So built into this whole Judeo-Christian experience is the possibility of division based on interpretation of the scriptures. That's mm-hmm. one of the reasons after the Protestant Reformation, you see such a fracturing um, among Protestants, and it seems to keep keep going. So in some ways, we're geared for that. You know, someone gets upset with someone else about how they interpret something. They'll split. They'll start a new church with everything else exactly the same, except for maybe one secondary one or tertiary section. Yeah. So then, then we move into the scholastic age in church history. And prior to the uh, uh, the rise of Islam, you have the five major cities of Christianity, right? Mm-hmm. 
Rome, Constantinople, Antioch, uh, Alexandria, Carthage. Well, I did good to remember those. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, and so then, you know, as a consequence of, of war and the movement of, of Islam, then you're down to two cities, Constantinople and Rome. And we all know about what happened in what was 1053, 1052, the schism, yeah. schism there. Great schism. Yeah. And so, and, 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 you know, e- even during the time of the church councils, when, was it the Syriac church that's, that split off because of Nestorianism? Um, I th- that sounds right. I believe so. I think, I think it's Oriental, um, uh, Orthodox church, the church that eventually made it to China by the late seventh yeah. century. And, and the, the sole division there was, was because that church believed that in the hypostatic union, if I'm not mistaken, there Christ was two persons in one body. Whereas you and I today in Protestantism would be um, one person in one right. body. Yeah. Yeah. Two natures, two wills, one person. One, and, and that was the major dividing point. So there's this trend historically that has come down to us. It's come into Protestantism that if you disagree with someone, um, you usually split before you try to work it out. Unless you're going to be like uh, St. Nicholas and punch somebody in the face. Well, you know, but the interesting yeah. thing is, is e- even though I know there have been various interpretations, one of the things I do find, as you mentioned, is that it used to be, it seemed like when I first was introduced to the apologetics world, I, you know, I realized that there were different interpretations on some of these things. But the nastiness that you, that you mentioned, that you mentioned, that the inability to, accept other interpretations or, or to accept other opinions that that really seems to be fueling um, some of this the tribalism that we see going on. So, uh, and, and this kind of moves in the second question, but if you had anything more you wanted to add, you know, please feel free to do so. But what do you see as a motivating factor behind this inevitable move uh, toward tribalism? Well, in addition to the, uh, the, the splits that we've seen. I, I think a part of it plays, and I saw this in my research project nine years ago, the strong sense of identity that people seek online to be seen as part of this camp as opposed to that camp. Now, one word that gets tossed around in the, in the, uh, these online forums is the word heresy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that word has lost its true meaning. Yeah. Um, I, I think one of the things we use here at the Bible college, cause we are a non-denominational school and we have this chart that resembles a, a series of bullseyes. So, and one of the things we try to inculcate in the students is, you know, at the very core of this center that, that all of us can agree on because, uh, staff have different views, um, on a number of subjects within theology, but we work well together because what we see is at the center of that bullseye are a series of, those are the essential doctrines of Christianity. Absolutely essential. The next outer ring, we consider the secondary distinctives, like my church might have open communion and use grape juice, and someone's church in Texas may be closed communion and use real wine. And those are local distinctives. Now, um, 
And then there might be tertiary issues, which tend more to opinions derived from Scripture. And so I think part of the problems in the group, um, one of the reasons we see these rise, there's a confusion of categories of essentials. I think some people oh, yeah. are confusing secondary and tertiary issues with those things that are true about Christianity. The apologetics community, for example, in the Christian Apologetics Alliance, we, we had a very, we still have a very basic set of guidelines um, that, that hosts a broader, more divergent range of views. And we ask people, you know, it's been to behave in conversations. That one, that would be one would hope from a small community like the apologetics community, but the um, the motivating factors now seem to be this confusion of of secondary and tertiary issues to the point that someone might consider someone else's opinion heresy when it really isn't right, and and you see that word thrown around, and and uh, so that leads to some some possibilities that we'll get to here shortly. I think uh, I think we can talk about that. Sure. So you you've mentioned that you see tribalism as something that's inevitable. Um, why 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 do you see it as an ine- inevitable reality for the apologetic community? Is it kind of the trajectory we're on? I I think it is the trajectory. Regrettably, I think. Uh, um. You know, one of the things you learn about in church history, I'll be teaching that next semester. Um, we will, we will dive into what it means to be what, what the ecumenical movement is. Mm-hmm. And I think, and, uh, I think part of the issue within the apologetics community is that people have their favorite methodologies, which is fine. They have their favorite, uh, apologists, because not everyone has the same interests or the same desires or the same philosophical background or might differ slightly on soteriology. I mean, these are just some basics and that's where it tends to fracture sometimes. You know, there's some people, um, one of the, one of the issues where the shoe has always dropped is the classical community as opposed to say the presuppositionalist community. Yeah. Yeah. You have older, mature Christians, um, and this is, I'm not referring to, to younger Christians as immature. I, well, let me, let me handle this with care. Uh, I have a very close friend locally, Presbyterian pastor. He's a presuppositionalist. I'm a classicalist. Thus we're like, okay, so we're different. Now what? <laughs> and, and we can talk, <laughs> we can talk about various, I've had him in my classroom to present, uh, another view because I want my students to encounter other views so that they can interact with them rather than just um, say no. I mean, right. if, if all you can do to shut someone down is your idea is just say no, well, that that's not <laughs> a good way to engage. And it's not a way to be friendly to our brothers and sisters in Christ. But, uh, <clears throat> but I hate to say that it's inevitable but you just you just look at denominational issues. You look at the fact it's a small community. You look at the times that people argue uh, that as if they can only respect someone if they have credentials of a certain mm-hmm. type. Mm-hmm. One does not need to be credentialed to know apologetics. One does not need to be credentialed to see bad argumentation. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and here we are. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I, I have many acquaintances who are, who are self-taught apologists who have learned very well. Mm-hmm. And, and their defense of the faith, faith is admirable. Um, but, but you and I have both seen in various communities these, these discussions on, um, on, uh, uh, credentialing and that, that sort of thing. Um, you know, I, I got to study under Dr. Geisler and he had a few techniques that people do not care for. And I'll be straight up. One is his famous roadrunner technique, where if you see a logical flaw in someone's reasoning, you don't hold back. You just go for mm-hmm. it. And that strikes some people as unwinsome. And I have commented to some of my online acquaintances before, well, that's, it may not be winsome, but it isn't wrong either. Mm-hmm. But again, you kind of drag that one out as a last resort. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. May so, not start so, with it. <laughs> right. I, and I hate the fact that, that, that we're separating this way as a small community. And we'll discuss the issue coming up here uh, in just a few moments, um, why it's not good and it's not healthy. And it really comes down to kind of people uh, typing twice, checking once before you hit send. Mm-hmm. Um, it comes down to whether some comments, unfortunately, and, and I, um, I have a response to this to, to something we're going to discuss coming up here. Um, we need to speak to the idea of tone deafness. Mm-hmm. We need to speak to that. So, um, uh, Perhaps we should we should move on slightly to a different topic and come back to that. <laughs> well, let, let me just say before we do move on, one of the things I appreciated about because uh, because one of the guys I studied under under in the PhD program was Dr. Gary Habermas, mm-hmm. uh, a man who who I greatly whom I greatly respect and admire. Uh, one of the things he actually did when we in an apologetics methodology class is one of the projects we had to do is we had to take a methodology that was different from our own and defend it. There you go. <laughs> and that's why he tells everyone in the class, don't go out and say so-and-so argued for this because in this class, we're going to argue for points in which we don't agree. <laughs> Just to simply get practice to see what other perspectives hold. And that was really helpful for me as both an individual and an apologist to be able to stop. Now, it's not that I'm always successful with it. I'll be honest with you. I'm not, but try the, try my best to kind of understand what the other person is saying and kind of understand the argument that's being made from the other, from the other side. Now, again, am I always successful with that? Probably not, but it is a very helpful practice, I believe. That, and that, one I greatly appreciate. That. That's a wonderful practice for a classroom, getting someone to see something from another perspective. Um, you know, I, I've created a, a course here called Apologetics in Appalachia. Uh, we, we are a small school in a mostly rural, small town setting. Um, we're in the heart of, 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 uh, addiction country here mm-hmm. uh we are in the you know 
there was a uh, Netflix special called Heroin that was shot locally. Hmm. Uh, we have, uh, in fact, I'm I'm still wearing my jacket from. We had a, a meeting about the role of the college regarding the addiction community here. How can we be of service mm. um, um, in providing relief from the suffering of addiction? Uh, I, I literally excused myself from the table and came in here and turned my camera on. Oh, wow. Um, uh, so, you know, and I, I kind of got off got off track here, but, you know, we, we try to introduce these experiences to our, our students and, and you had a good one there. Uh, same thing. If you might uh, have a class where you have to do some cross-cultural evangelism. Um, I spent a whole semester with a pair of Mormon missionaries who, mm. who were, who left Provo, Utah, very upper middle class, white Provo, Utah, and came here to rural Appalachia to do their ministry work. I, you know, and, and I got to go with them. I went to their stakeholder meeting, their stake meeting, you know, on a Sunday morning. Um, got to, got to, so it's this, it's the same thing, getting to know different people at a personal level in engaging with them, uh, having heart to heart con, uh, discussions. Uh, so when it comes to methodologies, you know, we, we've got folks, that, that separate along, along different lines. And, and I can understand that. And when I introduced, uh, presuppositionalism as, as an apologetics method, methodology, I always do so from a historical standpoint of why and when it was introduced. Because if you leave mm-hmm. out the theological underpinnings of why Van Til wrote what he did, in light of the rise of Schleiermacher and progressive Christianity and European theology. And you can see exactly why he cut to the chase. And instead of beginning with general revelation, like classicists do, Mm -hmm. he's going to start right with God himself, which is the other side of the coin, really. Um, But to, to see online dialogues, as someone outside the apologetics community to watch two persons who favor different methodologies going on, you'd think there was some kind of turf war or something going on. We're, we're <laughs> supposedly serving the same Christ, which we are. I mean, people are sincerely earnest. Um, sometimes sincerity in our earnestness and zealousness takes us to say things we might regret. You know, when it, when it, when it comes to the study of methodology. So, so you know that, that presuppositionalism deals with what people believe about certain things. It's an epistemological study. But what's what to me, when I teach things, you know, out of related to the growth and development of Christianity, you look at the book of Acts, you go to Acts 14 or Acts 17 and Paul either in Lystra or, or, uh, Mars Hill, Areopagus. What does he do? He talks, he begins with their presuppositions about general revelation, which today many in the presuppositionalist camp don't have time for general revelation, or they view it as something that can only be interpreted property through special revelation properly. But Paul comes in and says, okay, you know whose children we really are? And then he quotes a poem from Eridus from Phenomena 5, where it says we are all his offspring, which is really a 
a hymn to Zeus, which is now inscripturated uh, from the, at the Areopagus. <laughs> and, and, and so he, he says, okay, this is your notions of who God is, but let me tell you who God is. And then he starts appealing to general revelation. He's the creator of the world and everything you see. And so sometimes the apologetics we do is kind of done within a vacuum. Uh, mm-hmm. and it, I think, uh, growing in wisdom of all the methodologies, framing them correctly within the time in which they were developed, um, goes a long way to ending some of the behaviors that I have labeled and others tribalism. That might not be a good term. Again, I'm, I'm open to, to something else, but. Uh, like like you said, when you when you wear someone else's shoes and you look through these different issues, and it may not be your cup of tea, you know, but it never hurts to kind of pad that apologetics toolkit because no conversation with someone else will ever be the same. No one will ever interpret your words the same. So it it just helps to be well studied, well rounded, and by particular soapbox. And I'll let you get a word in edgewise somewhere here. Brian. <laughs> well, the one thing I was going to say is that we actually, you know, most of the people in the apologetic methodologies class held to either an evidentialist or a classical approach right. to apologetics. But there was one uh, guy, I won't mention who it is, great guy. I mean, now soteriologically, he comes from a different perspective than I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, apologetically, he comes from the presuppositional methodology. But I'm going to tell you what, the one thing I learned from, well, I learned several things from him. I told told him that he was the apologetic ninja because he was answering questions from all fronts. It seemed like people were trying to team up on him because he was the one presuppositionalist in the class. But, you know, there's one thing, even though I identify more with, I follow the classical and evidentialist approaches, I do think there is room for presuppositionalism in certain cases uh, when you're dealing with certain people in certain instances. So, you know, I think, as you just mentioned, I think we're better off. The more tools we can have in our tool pouch, the better off we are because everyone's different. And if the goal is truly to reach souls for Christ, to evangelize and disciple then it seems like, you know, every person's going to be a little different. So it may be that different methodologies prove useful. So, you know, maybe may, we may need to have be a little flex, more flexible as you were, as you were mentioning there. I, I really appreciate that. that. That's almost a word like ecumenicalism. <laughs> that's <word> flexible. <laughs> but, but, you know, we're, we're seeing other, now we're to the point where we're seeing discussions uh, between uh, sub methodologies, if you will, you know, you you have some in the minimal facts camp, you have some in the maximal fa- facts camp. Well, how about we do the Apostle Paul using the Old Testament only yeah. to prove the person of Jesus camp? You could do that. You could do the whole Council of Scripture camp. Mm-hmm. You know, and and the, all right, I'm, I'm going to have to stop before I say something <laughs> regrettable. But well, so, people people like what they like, you know, because the different methodologies speak to different personalities. We have a well, lot of different personalities within the apologetics camp. So. Yeah, and, and, and to your point, I mean, 
because I I would see where some people would benefit from. Well, for instance, evidentialism, as Gary Habermas would say, sometimes the the only pl- you know you only have the time that you have an elevator to spend with someone to mention. So he he uses the evidentialist approach because he says it gets to the gospel quicker. And that's the reason he he loves that. Uh, not trying to speak for Habermas, but he says that's the reason he loves that approach. Um, for some people, that might be essential. For other people, they may have issues more that re- re- require a classical approach in dealing with general and and uh, revelation and and um, specific revelation. But anyhow, you know, there again, I. I, I not to sound ecumenical, <laughs> but Sorry. there again, it, <laughs> there, there, there's going to be another label people put on me. But anyhow, if uh, if if again, if the goal is to reach souls for Christ, and and people are different, um, to me, in even getting to the maximal and minimal facts argument, that that's such a minuscule debate in my opinion, because both of them. Quite honestly, I'm not trying to get you started on it, but both of them have value in my opinion. So why does it have to be one or the other? I, I don't understand it. Right, right. And, and you know, some of the you'll you'll see one side push back against the other. And uh, and and these things, you know, that is the shoe dropping now? I don't know. Maybe it is. Um, you know, I created a course here called bibliological apologetics i borrowed that that phrase from reading it in one of bb warfield's essays i have never found today where he actually defines what bibliological apologetics is so i give it a stab in this class (laughs) but and and this you know i i know what you studied in your program there for your degree and and i i it's a it's a bachelor levels course, an undergrad course where we combine Christology, the intertestamental period, the use of the Old Testament in the New, and we focus on how the New Testament writers, particularly in their eyewitness accounts, utilized Old Testament scripture to present Jesus as the promised Christ. And it's not necessarily about prophecy. Because you know as well, you start looking into the creedal statements like in Philippians 2, and you start seeing where the words ascribed to or these deeds described that Yahweh does are now being applied to a man, Jesus, and the serious implications uh, of doing such a thing in light of what Judaism professes, uh, particularly in light of the Shema and the rest of the Old Testament scripture. That that is, I that is a struggle to communicate in today's society. If we're, mm-hmm. if we're going to talk a little bit about methodologies, how do you communicate this drastic change that occurred between a particular faith community um, that I'm afraid, you know. When when unbelievers interpret Christianity, you've got the whole Dan Brown scenario. Uh, Constantine did everything at, at Nicaea. Well, so you're going to get me started now. <laughs> yeah. But, but, and, but again, there's, there's this whole rich content that, that is behind the development of the New Testament canon, the New Testament scriptures, 
and the way the church fathers continued to preach and teach the charisma of the apostles that that I don't think it's adequately communicated in our churches because there's misconceptions about it. You know, when I, if I read from Ignatius or Clement or or any of the, the early, I'm not presenting that as scripture, mm-hmm. but to read it as a historical document long before Nicaea, where the content of the apostles is contained and it's right down the line with what the New Testament says. Well, it's pretty obvious the New Testament hasn't been changed between the time it was written and the church councils. And there's a lot more, I think, that if the apologetics community to be to be found in rich study of the biblical data, because it's terribly easy to find the gateway drug of apologetics and get swept up into apologetics methodology. And then you get firmly entrenched in a camp that appeals to you and, and to neglect study of the word to yes. become an effective apologist is almost to cut off the nose to spite your face. Absolutely. It really is. And that's, I'm not trying to step on toes. I'm trying to encourage if, you know, I think if the apologetics community would start, digging into the richness of Scripture, how the New Testament came about, do a historical study on what transpired during the intertestamental period, study study bibliology, how we got the manuscripts, how it came down, how it's not been corrupted. Um, I think the apologetics community could thrive and maybe get away from some of these tribal behaviors if if they would enjoy the richness of study of growing in wisdom and knowledge of the Lord. I, I just Absolutely. think I, I think the time spent trying to say this is my group and I'm not part of this group. And I'm not suggesting that 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 people are neglecting, but there what this this goes we're going to segue into this now. Okay, we're going to segue into um, how others perceive us and what people may not realize that they betray when they post on social media. Mm-hmm. And and it happens with younger apologists. And it happened to me when I was an older man, but a young in apologetic years. Okay. <laughs> um. There are a couple of conversations on social media when I was less educated that I wish I could get back because I was in a couple of forums and did not realize who I was talking to because I was new and, and hadn't didn't know the lay of the land. There are a couple of high profile uh, individuals that are somewhat tangential to the apologetics movement. Maybe they were more theological or something to that effect or in a different type of ministry. But me not knowing who I was talking to online, I kind of was a smart aleck. <laughs> and to this day now, you know, 15 years later, 12 years, whatever it is, I wish I could get those conversations back because now I don't have that person within my network. And yeah. I probably won't ever get that person with, 
in my network. So there are times within this tribalism where a little tone deafness goes a long way for the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is not getting, this is not speaking to the idea of needing credentials, but I wish those who are new to the community who maybe haven't had the opportunity to study and maybe they couldn't afford to study that, you know, that's, you don't, you don't have to be rich to study apologetics. You can read and get caught up. I, mm-hmm. I know several who, who are wonderful apologists who maybe did not have the opportunity for formal study. But those who have studied, um, or who, who have worked hard for credentials, particularly in the PhD camp, um, if you have a PhD, you earned it. I know I did. <laughs> and, and you, you didn't get there. You didn't get there by getting a mail order. Exactly. Uh, degree. And so a little civility, common sense decorum goes a long way in becoming someone they can trust online rather than someone they will avoid from here on out. And like I said, there were one or two that I, when I was just starting my development, I wish I could get those back. I can't now, you know, my, my further exploits in teaching and apologetics are going to be fine without them, but now I don't have a connection that I could have made that I can, that I can uh, exchange ideas with or, or seek mentorship with. And, and I think, I think tribalism would be lessened if, if the civility and a lack of tone deafness, a little introspection on what is actually being spoken online. Um, let, let me interject here just for yeah. a second here. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm going to go ahead and skip a couple of our questions because you, okay. you wonderfully answered them. Uh, if, if, uh, I'm going to go ahead and post these questions when we, when we, um, okay. uh, publish the podcast. Uh, so you just covered the fourth and fifth questions about, uh, the difference between tribalism and intellectual perspectives. And then right. the inherent dangers of tribalism was the next question. And you showed, uh, the tone deafness, that's a danger. You showed how, you know, we may lose connections, uh, in that regard. But let me, I, w- I want to also touch base on something you mentioned because you worked hard for, because I, I know SES, you worked hard <laughs> for the doctor of ministry degree. Uh, at Liberty, you know, you, you earn the PhD degree. I, I think, uh, Scott, uh, St- uh, excuse me, um, um, Dr. Jordan, one of our, one of my classmates and fellow graduates, I think he estimated that we uh, read somewhere around, around 40,000 pages and I think wrote somewhere around a thousand pages by the time the whole program was over. So, but one of the things that I really truly, um, one of the greatest benefits of coming through the program was a greater sense of humility. And, and knowing that there are far more books out there than I'll ever have a chance to read. There are some of the greatest minds in history that's dealt with a lot of the issues we're dealing with. I mean, you got guys like Thomas Aquinas. I mean, good gracious. How many pages was the Summa Theologica? I mean, just thousands of pages. Um, 
And then toward the end of life, you know, he had a vision of heaven, said everything I've written is nothing but straw compared to what <laughs> I mean, amazing. I mean, there's just there's so many there's volumes and volumes of information out there uh, defending one position and then volumes and volumes of information um, arguing against it. And I think that when you go through one of the greatest benefits is the fact that you do have a, a greater sense of humility coming through, knowing that there's just so much out there uh, that, that it's impossible to get. I mean, you can have kind of a good understanding of something, but as, as far as mastering every minute detail, I don't know that it's possible with our finite minds. Mm-mm. No, I, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. You know, the older the older I get and the more my hair turns gray, uh, I just don't have enough time to read that I really wish I had. And and I'm not going to be retiring anytime soon. I'm way too busy for that. I'm way too busy. I thought once I got my degree, maybe I could slow down. Well, the Lord had other plans for that. So, so which is a good thing though, because I'm I'm in a good place now. Um, you know, I had considered going for a a PhD, but then I asked myself a hard question: Where is my ministry? in relationship to my scholarship and my mm-hmm. ministry is um, it's not, it's not preaching and it's not academics. It's, it's training up teaching students of high school age to college age, and also students here at the Bible college to prepare them for ministry. What can I do to integrate apologetics and ministry such that they can have tools that they can utilize in their preaching, teaching, and evangelism for the rest of their lives. And fortunately, the D-Men program at SES was rigorous enough. Here I am teaching, you know, at a Bible college. I'm also involved with several ministries, um, uh, working on getting ordained at my church just so I could be a service to Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. It's a little different now on this side of all those degrees than it than it would be for someone who's just getting started. So we're we're kind of laughing at that, you know. Well, just what will my committee ask me that I <laughs> that I I'm more concerned about what I've forgotten by this point. But but again, well, we're, I hope they don't do to you what they uh, did to me. Whenever I was before the ordination committee, one smart aleck asked me, says, "Define the Trinity." And everybody just looked at him, shook their heads, and said, well, you define the Trinity. If you can define it, let me hear what you have to say. <laughs> well, that's it's kind of funny because I've actually got a section in there on a Thomistic presentation of the Trinity. <laughs> but it's it's written kind <laughs> of in layman's terms. Yeah, yeah, I, I kind of. But but again, getting, getting to our and, – and that just shows the willingness to prepare. Now, not everyone has that opportunity, like I said. Um, um, heaven knows you don't have to, to, to stress yourself out and devote yourself to years of scholarship to become an apologist. Oh, sure. Um, uh, the church will be wonderfully served if apologetics was integrated more. Um, mm-hmm. the church will be wonderfully served with different types of apologetics. Now I know different, Different denominations, different theologies, different strains of systematic theologies tend to one or the other. I, I find the whole discussion now, speaking of tribalistic discussions of whether 
these reformers, these reformers of the Catholic Church who in protest became Protestants, whether they ever had any contact with Aquinas. I think that's one of the funniest discussions that's going on right now. You meet a bunch of ex-Catholics didn't at least know what Thomas Aquinas taught, but, but, you know, I, it is what it is. And, 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 you know, Dr. Purser told me, I think it was him who told me years ago, you know, sometimes theological conversations, people like to draw a little blood <laughs> when he yes. was in some of these things we engage in. But but generally, I you know, I would like to see for the apologetics community as a whole to, and this is just me, and people could disagree, and they probably will in the comments, and that's fine. You know, we're we're all trying to be adults here and engage in conversation. I w- I would like to see people become aware of how others interpret their posts because there are times, you know, I've made comments that were. Uh, I have a very odd sense of humor sometimes. And sometimes I post things that I think are communicating a little bit of humor, wryly, little wry humor, and people take it the wrong way. And I constantly have to remind myself, don't assume they know what I'm talking about. And don't assume that, that they're going to interpret it correctly. You know, people can interpret well, that, anything that, you that say. Kind of leads- that, that that kind of leads to the the next question, and I'll go ahead and present this. I okay. think you've already answered it, but just to go ahead and see if you have any extra thoughts on this. How might we as apologists and Christians find solutions to the tribalism we we find? And and I think that's an excellent point uh, to be made. To is to really, I mean, it's like a, that's like the old saying uh, carpenters use: measure twice, cut once. Mm-hmm. And to your point, maybe it would be best to think twice and post once, you know, know, consider or maybe think 10 times and then post once, especially keeping in mind how others may perceive the comments we post. And that's something I'll be honest with you. As you were going through this, I'm thinking back to myself. Oh, my goodness. I wonder how some of these comments I've posted, how they may have been taken or they taken in a different manner than what I intended them to be. You know, it's kind of, kind of funny. I was rolling around ideas before you sent, uh, before you sent a question or two to me to, to think through. You know, I was thinking about, thinking about it in the late seventies when the Chicago statement on biblical inerrancy came about. And, and I was looking at the people who signed it. You had Sproul and MacArthur and Geisler and Packer and Schaefer. And I'm trying to, there are so many others, well-known names to us now. This is, I started thinking, well, maybe we should have some sort of statement on Christian essentials. What are the essentials of the faith? And then I realized, well, that's going to divide people who disagree on the essentials (laughs) from those who agree on what they think are essentials. So you're really just creating more tribalism by filing. (laughs) But, but. But again, it, it just, it comes down, I think, really to a personal decision to set aside some snark once in a while, set aside, uh, in humility, our desire to be right about everything. Yeah. Um, to make a conscious effort to understand that others will misinterpret us regardless of our best efforts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 
anyone who's ever been in the pulpit for a Sunday and said something. Now, I'm, I'm more of a teacher than a preacher, but I have filled the pulpit before. And you say something that has nothing in relation to what someone interpreted it as. And mm-hmm. in your mind, you're going, how on earth did you interpret it that way? I wasn't there. I to wasn't me. meaning it. There. And, and, and those are going to happen, but I think the general culture has influenced our community enough that I'm not sure our community sees the degree to which it's becoming snarky and a little bit backbitey and this desire to prove we're of this group and not that group, which is virtue signaling, which was virtue signaling before virtue signaling was called virtue signaling. It's been going on on, in Facebook for 12, 13 years now. So I, I think it's just being conscious of how you are being perceived. The voting. We don't. I'm, yes. I was just going to say, you know, I'm taking a clinical pastoral education, okay. which is something. And I've, I've told people, in fact, I told the, the, the class, I, I really, I think in God's great providence, he allowed me to take this on the tail end of finishing the PhD program. Sure. Because I've been in school probably 10, 20 years, quite honestly. Um, <laughs> at the end of this, mm-hmm. God has allowed me to take clinical, because all this has been training for the mind. Clinical pastoral education is really more training for the heart. Right. And I think I needed this coming out. Sure. I mean, honest to goodness, I believe it did. But they have a saying, and that's act, reflect, react. Reflect back on your actions and and uh, create a game plan to do things better in the future because we're all going to mess up, we're all going to make mistakes. But act, you know, and then then reflect and then react. And I think it's a great thing, and I think that's kind of what we're even evoking through our conversation tonight is to really go back and reflect on some of the comments we've made, some of the things maybe the community is doing. And maybe be able to react in a more positive sense, you know, moving forward, which brings us up to uh, the next question. Um, so what we was talking about solutions, um, did you have any more solutions you were going to add before you were going to add before I move on to this next question? Well, no, it's just just this. What what can I do to demonstrate a little unity with my brothers and sisters in the apologetics community. I mean, I know I you, you look at all the possible lines where, again, we're using the word tribalism. Maybe that's not right, but that's what we're using for the moment of where right. they can be drawn. You know, I, I saw a, a friend had posted a book today I wasn't aware of on church fathers and their views of Genesis 1. I thought, well, if I have time in the next 10 years, maybe I'd like to read read that book. <laughs> so you just look at all the different lines that have been drawn uh, between soteriology, you know, if someone is more of a Calvinist perspective or an Arminian perspective or somewhere in between, maybe, you know, like, mm-hmm. like some Baptists, like a traditionalist and provisionalist approach. What if someone's in Eastern Orthodoxy? Or, uh, for example, in the CAA, there would, you know, the Christian Apologetics Alliance should likely to find Catholic apologists. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so there are some 
some basic perspectives we can all glean from one another. You know, in the past two weeks, we've seen we've seen one apologist cross the Tiber. He swum the Tiber, mm-hmm. and you have another apologist who deconstructed, deconverted after after a period of time, which which led to much conversation on Facebook for and against both gentlemen. Instead of you know, and there were some who pulled up alongside and said, you know, you're you're still my friend. Um. Um, you'll always be my friend. And there were others who got right to work tearing them down. Yeah. Um, it, I, again, I, I, to me, it goes back to being self-aware of the impact of the words you are saying, because I seem to recall a verse somewhere about, about the stray and careless words that we, speak sometimes and giving a Yeah, I think even Jesus himself said that uh, we'll be held accountable for every word that's spoken and that's a scary thought. <laughs> it, it's a terribly scary thought. Um you know, when when we finally get a CMI die and he said, "You remember that post on the, <laughs> on December 2nd, 2022 where you were a little snarky with somebody who was going through something that you had no idea they were going through and but anyway, yeah, yeah. So, so again, no, it's just the, the, the self-awareness and being aware of how you will most likely be misinterpreted. Even if you don't intend any perniciousness or harm in your comment, it's just going to happen. A couple other concluding questions here. Um, if the trajectory stays the same, what do you see as the end result of the, of an apologetic community broken into these tribes and cliques? I mean, these, these, the splintering that seems to be occurring, if it continues to go that route, what could it mean for apologetics to, to put on your prophetic hat? Okay. <laughs> what what right. do you prognosticate as, to, as the yes. uh, end result of a community that continues down this path? I see a public image problem both within and without the church i just see you know one of the common things that we hear within the apologetics community is the resistance of some pastors and churches to even have apologetics in their church Um, fortunately i attend a church where the pastors have been have studied apologetics to some degree so uh, i have a a class I teach high school students. We're in our 10th year right now to teach high school students apologetics in a weekly course at the church. That's a rarity I found out. Um, and it took me probably four or five years to get the leadership of the church comfortable enough to let me have a class in the sense that there already was a teen group. Uh, so why do we need another class in apologetics? Well, fortunately, cell phones happened <laughs> and, <laughs> and teenagers got wrapped up in having the world brought straight to them. Right. I mean, cause this, cause I've noticed a shift in the students that I have. If it doesn't get filtered through this thing, it's not true. And so mm. I find myself deconstructing to use a word some of the things that they learned through this device but um 
But that's the problem I see. I see outsiders in certain groups, because I'm in some very contentious groups, atheist Christian groups. And to see to see a couple of Christians trying to frame a topic that they disagree on how it should be handled in front of unbelievers, non-believers. What's that communicating right there? That if you can't agree within your, if you both profess to be Christian, yet you can't agree on a topic or at least agree to disagree amicably in public when you're trying to answer the questions of others who may be resistant to those answers anyway. It's kind of a, I don't want to say a public image thing. I hate to say it that way, but there's just, there's a perception both in the church, outside the church, that apologetics is kind of this tertiary issue that uh, causes sometimes more problems than it cures. And there's, um, to speak to that, okay, to speak to this Mm -hmm. issue, if you ever go on a, let's say you have a high-profile apologist, right? Because there's, I sometimes I, I refer to it as the apologetics industrial complex. You know, apologetics degrees weren't widely available 12 to 15 years ago. Now you have a lot of graduate programs, typically an MA in apologetics. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, those de- those degrees are wonderful degrees. To, for folks who could really utilize them in ministry, are they necessarily a terminal degree? You're going to come out a generalist. There's nothing wrong with being a generalist. I'm a generalist. I will say that. There's nothing wrong with being a generalist. Um, But that's where you're going to be with that that degree. There's only a handful, maybe not this many, but maybe this many of celebrity apologists the CAS, Celebrity Apologist Syndrome. So for a while, Mm -hmm. there was this belief from a lot of people who enrolled in these programs that they were going to be the next celebrity apologist. Well, Mm -hmm. how much demand is there for the celebrity apologist? There's only a handful, and they're going to be usually at the conventions on either coast or the smaller conventions in the middle. And then on, on, on top of that, um it, there's this issue so then what happens to the people who don't become these high profile apologists well there's not only so many outlets and if you have churches resistant to it and if there aren't a whole lot of ministry opportunities you know what it's amazing the number of people you and I have seen burst onto the scene in apologetics become very popular at a medium level, and then they fade away. Oh, yeah. You never see them again. And I wonder about some of the people we used to interact with eight, eight, ten years ago. wonder what they're doing now. Did, did they just lose interest and burn out? Did they get tired of banging their head on a wall? Did they never, were they never able to find a ministry that kind of fit them and, and what their their spiritual talents or natural gifts were. Um, I, I think the perception of apologists within and without the church is going to be the problem issue as a result of what we're seeing in these breakdown into tribal groups. I, w- I went a long way around the mountain on that one. but <laughs> No, no, and very, very wisely and astutely said, I, I 
I can see what you're saying coming true very, very vividly. In fact, and with with there already being a problem in introducing apologetics into the church community, and we have this unchristlike behavior going on between the different segments, it's going to not only, as you said, the more important issue, as you said, the image problem from the outside, but it's even going to be even it's going to make it even harder to get apologetics in the churches. With if these things continue with that image that's taking place. So last question for you, Um, by the way, looking at our chat board on social media, we've got people viewing from all across the world. We even had a person speak up saying that they were from India. So uh, hello to uh, to those folks who may be listening to us from India. Um, So last question, do you have any words of encouragement that you'd like to share with those who desire to combat this trend that we see going on uh, with this tribalism or whatever other word we would want to use sure. for this division taking place. Sure. Um, I have a couple of, of small points and then one point I'd really like to emphasize. Okay. Uh, we discussed the idea of thinking twice and editing before posting and uh, be cautious with our tone uh, accept the fact that you will most likely be misinterpreted regardless of whatever you say. Um, uh, don't allow yourself to become emotional in your responses to posts. Okay. Um, there's, there's that's, that's a tough things. one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, try to avoid using the laugh emoji at someone who's trying to be in a serious conversation with you. You know, there are times. Guilty there again. <laughs> yeah, if the laugh emoji. Now, now if something's genuinely funny. I like, I like the laugh emoji, emoji. But <clears throat> so here, here comes Dr. P's small word of advice. Okay. And, and I share this with my students, regardless of it's the high school students or the college students here or when it was the college students at Marshall. Okay. And I, and I found that a lot of people, uh, a lot of students don't think this way. And by student, I mean anyone who desires to grow in wisdom and knowledge of the Lord, let alone apologetics. When, when you set aside time, you or I, or anyone watching, when you set aside time to study, okay, when you, you say, okay, I'm going to learn a new apologetics topic, or I'm going to, I'm going to study, let's say, Pauline epistles. Or maybe I'm going to study the Gospels and and look where they utilize the Old Testament prophecies and typology. When we take time to study, to grow in these manners, study is an act of worship. Mm-hmm. This is a very <laughs> this turned very serious all of a sudden. When we take time to study, it is an act of worship because mm-hmm. we are declaring uh, we're declaring to God His worship in growing and and learning in wisdom, grace, and knowledge. And, and you see mm-hmm. that constantly, particularly in both Pauline and the universal or general epistles. Grow in wisdom and knowledge. Grow in wisdom and knowledge. Grow in grace and wisdom of the Lord. And so you think of all the distractions we have in our society from TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, sports, um, and this may sting a little, but family obligations, things that detract us from worship outside of a church setting. 
Study is an act of worship. And, and so when you take time that you could spend otherwise on other distractions, you're making an investment in yourself that can pay dividends down the road for those you meet. Amen. And so as apologists, instead of, instead of taking the time to kind of critique methodologies, because methodologies are really only as good as the person using them. It, it doesn't matter what the method is. There's your mic drop for the night. <laughs> and, but, but seriously, and I'm not, and I'm not, you notice that I haven't picked on any camp tonight. I've tried to be very gracious, you know, and I'm not going to pick on a camp and I'm not going to pick on a side and someone might be aggravated with me for not picking a side, but learn other methodologies, understand where they came from, um, get better at studying the word. You know, a deficiency of the word doesn't do anyone any good, whether they're an apologist or working in a kid's ministry. Yep. The whole reason I got into apologetics and study is because I had a nine-year-old boy at an Awana meeting ask me how Jesus could be fully God and fully man. I couldn't answer. In that moment, the light bulb went off. Maybe you better get some training, buddy, <laughs> or else you're being a little bit hypocritical. So, so study can actually be enjoyable, particularly if, if there, you aren't pressuring yourself to do it. You know, mm-hmm. teaching at a Bible college, I see a lot of students come in because they think they have a call or they know they have a call, but their first response is, well, I better go to college and get an education. So they fall in love with the idea of getting that credential. And then they realize the work involved. <laughs> and then a little bit of the imposter syndrome sets in like, Oh, I, oh, yeah. I can't, I can't do this. I can't, or I'm, I'm not prepared to do this. So there's no way I can do this. I'm, I'm just faking it while I'm here. Well, welcome to the club. Everybody goes through that at some point. Yep. But, but it, it's encouraging in study, watching the tone deafness. And realizing every single word you put on social media can and will be misinterpreted. Absolutely. So, Doctor Mark Phillips, thank you for being on with us on the Bellator Christie podcast. This this is one going back as as I mentioned before in in clinical pastoral education. They tell us to act, reflect, react. I think this episode is one that's going to go down in the books as being something that is going to hopefully evoke just that uh, for us to really, as we have act, acted, as we are acting, to go back and reflect on our actions mm-hmm. and to come up with a better game plan as we move forward. If you are in the area, Tri-State Bible College, uh, Dr. Uh, Mark Phillips is the uh, VP of academics there. So if you're in that area, go check out Tri-State Bible College. They're doing great work. Dr. Phillips, thank you for being on with us. It's been a joy and privilege. And let's make sure to do this again. I've thoroughly enjoyed this episode and I'd love to have you back sometime soon. All right. That sounds like a wonderful idea, Brian. I'd, I'd really like to do that. So I love you, buddy. Love you too, my brother. For Dr. Mark Phillips and for Curtis Evelo, he couldn't be with us tonight. Uh, Hopefully he'll be with us on next week. Uh, This is uh, Brian Chilton saying God bless. We'll see you back next time right here on the Bellator Christian Podcast.
You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast with Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo. This podcast is an exclusive production of Bellator Christie Ministries and is protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The views expressed on this podcast may not reflect the opinions of Bellator Christie Ministries and its affiliates. We thank you for listening and hope you'll consider leaving a positive review. To see more from Bellator Christie Ministries, go to bellatorchristi.com.